I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, BBC Three bounces back to broadcast TV. But what fate awaits BBC Four? A former Fleet Street editor reveals he supported the IRA and the budget offers some financial help for some media freelancers. Plus, Ant Middleton won't be back on Channel 4, but why? New Scientist has a new home, but where? And in the Media Podcast quiz, I'll be running the numbers. That's all to come in today's media podcast. And on today's show, if you were to look up media podcast legend in a dictionary, you would find her picture. It is the one and only Maggie Brown. Hi, Maggie. Hello there. Uh, time for our quarterly check-in on uh, the progress of your book about the history of Channel 4. I understand it is at the printers. It is indeed. And the index was done, I think, by about the 4th of February. So I'm kind of holding my breath and hoping that I think it's going to be a June launch. But there may be, I think, an online version out before that. So I've, I've, to be honest, I've just been spending the past few weeks really being quite lazy and reading a lot, actually. <laughs> And I understand as well you've been busy judging your peers at the RTS Awards. I have indeed. Um, I was one of the judges at the Royal Television Society's uh, Journalism Awards and we were my, my group were, were judging the interview of the year. Um, I was with very distinguished company, Fraser Nelson and um, Mark Stephen, the, the media lawyer. And we had the person who runs the city journalism course, Susanna Franks, chairing us. Uh, and um, I was actually really pleased because... The winner was uh, Andrew Ma uh, with a very good interview uh, with the Chinese ambassador at the point that the ambassador was trying to deny and talked over, really, uh, questions about the Uyghurs. There was footage of them being uh, shunted uh, uh, in uh, into, into railway carriages, all the rest of it. And yeah, just into the attempt- so-called yes. re-education Exactly, camps, yeah. yes. And that was actually very good because... Uh, compared with some of the other uh, shortlisted entries, and I'm sure you can imagine who they might be, uh, Andrew Marr was both uh, brilliant, uh, but also very polite. It was a very sort of English type of interview, or probably Scottish, so British sort of interview, but very hard-hitting too, which made a lot of headlines, so that was quite pleased. But it was the point when I came to the actual awards, which was last week, 
It was then that I found myself literally breaking with online events. I, I mean, I've been judging and, and going to those awards probably for 30 years. And it's great because you have a champagne reception before. You see all these people you kind of know. And then you go and have a lovely dinner, even you though, of course... You didn't get to press the no, flesh with Andrew Marr, did you? It was actually more to do with... I was sitting here, actually, and uh, the, the feed broke down. The, the video went wrong or something. I don't know. I don't think it was me. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, here I am sitting, slouching away, and I could be in an evening dress in a really nice place. <laughs> and I'm just really, really fed up with this. And so I then kind of, and then the, the, the feed broke, and you weren't sure where you were in the actual event, which only went on for an hour. And I thought, I've just about had enough with all these Zoom meetings and, I, and all I these awards ceremonies. I think you speak ceremonies. for us all on Do that Do you one. feel that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Zoom fatigue. Well, Zoom fatigue was last year. I'm like post Zoom fatigue now. I don't know where I am. Yeah, it's post kind of Zoom awards as well. I mean, I could, I just couldn't bear to even think about the Golden Globes, for example. And I know we've got so many other awards ceremonies going. I'm just going straight to the list. Who's won? Who hasn't won? Oh, there we go. You know. Well, uh, also joining us this week, the man whose fingers are so firmly on the pulse of TV news, it hurts when he types. It is Jake Cantor from Deadline. Hello, Jake. It hurts me when I type. I'm not (laughs) sure about other people. (laughs) Are you bored of Um, online awards? um, uh, Officially, I can't say yes to that answer because I am the chairman of the Broadcasting Press Guild and we are are just about to host our awards online. So, Although I have to say we're not doing a Zoom... Uh, a Zoom ceremony. We are doing them all via Twitter. Uh, we have some fantastic and heartwarming acceptance speeches already with us, and uh, it will all be neatly packaged up and tweeted out accordingly. Right. So if you're nominated and you haven't been asked to record an acceptance speech, you haven't won. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's probably a safe a safe bet. Um, but Jake, but wasn't that always the case? Because you knew it, if you were invited to the lunch, you probably were standing a very good <laughs> chance of picking up a nice award. And, you're, well, you're well spot done on. You, but well done you for doing a nice edited event, which will be enjoyable. I, I mean, I'll be watching that one. Yeah, I mean, it'll all, it'll all be tweeted out. And, and you're right. Uh, it, it, it's one of the few award ceremonies where everyone in the room knows they're a winner. Uh, and that's what kind of makes it lovely and unique, I think. Let's... Um talk about a news story that you broke today Jake or at least the day of recording yesterday if you're listening tomorrow that's how podcasting works uh, which is news of the Edinburgh TV Festival's first ever advisory chair from a streaming service. Yes that's right Uh, Georgia Brown who is the kind of head of original head of original content at uh, at Amazon uh, certainly in Europe Uh, she is going to be the advisory chair of the Edinburgh TV Festival we're not entirely sure yet what form the festival is going to take um, they're being very tight. Whether it'll be Maggie compliant or not. <laughs> well, they're being they're being very tight lipped about whether we will be heading to Scotland in August. My bet is that they're going to try and do a bit of both, um, some online events and maybe something in Scotland, just sort of symbolically, maybe the McTaggart potentially. Um, uh, but there may be some more events in London. I'm not sure. It's going to be a bit of a mixed ecology and Georgia Brown will kind of be at the heart of that setting the agenda. YouTube have been headline sponsor for a few years now, haven't they, of the TV festival? So it's not as if, you know, the online companies weren't represented at a very high level there. But it, it just strikes me that maybe the difference this year to previous years is that it used to be that the big sessions everyone would want to see would be you know, BBC and Channel 4 and Sky, and maybe now actually 
the delegates would be more interested in Amazon and Netflix and Disney+. Plus. Well, remember, the Guardian Media Group used to um, be the major sponsor, and also the broadcasters themselves used to host a lot of events. BBC Scotland opened the the event with a big drinks party and there was competition really as well for the the most sought after sessions were meet the controller because people were just hoping I mean being basically uh, patronized by the uh, independent producers they were looking for you know a way to to grab a commission so uh, given that there's so much so much choice so many people looking for content um, you can see why the newcomers a they've got the money and say Amazon is, you know, gazillions richer than, say, ITV. Um, it's, it's all very logical, if a bit soulless. I think that's definitely true. I think it, it, it's become a sort of badge of honour, particularly for producers, to, to have Netflix or Amazon or Apple or now Disney Plus and Star on your on your CV, I think it's uh, it's something that a lot of producers are clamouring for. And do those corporations, mostly in America, want to be as familiar to the British TV production sector? Do you think as as the terrestrial broadcasters of old? Because it used to be people would be on first name terms, wouldn't they? Talk about Danny for Danny Cohen, for example, back in the day. I don't get that sense about necessarily, you know, your Netflixes and your Amazons. They're seen as an algorithm sometimes rather than a commissioner. I think that's true to a certain extent, but they all have content teams here in the UK. Um, They all have well-respected commissioners who are forging serious connections with producers in this country because it's entirely within their interests to do so. The UK is a powerhouse of content. We've just seen the Golden Globes. 40% of the winners at the Golden Globes were Brits uh, or UK projects. Uh, And that shows you how this country punches above its weight. We produce some of the best content in the world and the streamers want a piece of it. All right, let's talk about TV um, and BBC Three. Uh, which will be returning to the fusty, old-fashioned airwaves. After an absence of nearly six years, it's going to be back on our TV sets in January, Maggie. Uh, Will you be watching? I mean, I think it's fair to say you're not target demographic, but will you be watching? (laughs) I'm certainly not the target demographic, but I'm very pleased it's coming back. Uh, I think it shouldn't have gone away in the first place. I also, what I like is the fact that it's also going to be, as it were, following on from CBBC. So one of the aims of the BBC and one of the failures of the BBC has been fantastic children's programming from the CBeebies lot, graduating through to CBBC so we can think of, you know, horrible histories, for example, great, great shows. Uh, But then they lost their advantage. And I think now that they're going to take an hour off uh, CBBC and move into BBC Three. And I think this is actually a potentially good way of rebuilding interest because they can actually put forward some some great some great shows whether they'll be watched I don't know they can be caught up with but the thing is really we're all sport sport for choice now and to actually just rob uh, a group of uh, a, a terrestrial tv channel just seems to me to have been a very bad idea but on the other hand what you actually see is that the, the regulators have been nagging away at the producers because, or, and, and the executives because they're losing the, the younger uh, viewers. In, but it's a very competitive market. So the more outlets you have, the better. It's, it's been obvious to 
the real professionals in television, including the, the controller of BBC Three, that the, the, the decision five years ago was wrong. And so they're finally uh, reversing it. It may be too late, but I'm glad they're doing it. Yeah, it's interesting, Jake. I look back, actually, or listen back, I should say, to what our panellists said here on the Media Podcast when the move was announced that BBC BBC Three would be moving online because we were on air back then in 2015. Uh, Leon Wilson said on the show to me, it's a huge mistake. It will probably be a qualified success. There will be one or two programmes that punch through online, but it'll be harder for others to be seen. And Faraz Osman said, this is utter nonsense. I can't believe this is happening. Television has an important canvas that young people are underserved in. Time has proven them right, really, hasn't it? Was it always a mistake to put BBC Three online? Can we just say that now? I think the fact that the BBC's made this decision is a tacit acknowledgement that it was a mistake. But I also don't think that it was a failure. Um, BBC Three, unshackled from the schedule, did reasonably well, did very well, in fact, some fantastic shows came through uh, within that online environment. I'm thinking of the likes of Fleabag, which has got on to huge international success and uh, won Emmys and landed Phoebe Waller-Bridge, a huge deal with Amazon. Um, And then you look at things like Normal People, which came last year, iPlayer's most successful show um, last year and and beyond, I think, ever. Um, Things like This Country, just quality, quality programming. Now, that that's not to say that wouldn't that those shows would not have been commissioned if BBC Three was on television, but I do think there was a creative freedom that came with being online only, and I hope that that remains that creative freedom continues, and the BBC Three doesn't have to spend its money on schedule filling content like Family Guy, like EastEnders repeats, because that ha- you know that comes with a cost. It still comes with a cost. Those are repeats, but they ha- they still come with a cost, those shows. Yeah, well, so why not save the cash? Because all of those shows that Jake just listed, Maggie, had outings on BBC One or BBC Two anyway. So they did get a linear outing and arguably would have been commissioned even if BBC Three hadn't, been, hadn't existed somewhere else on the BBC. I, I'm, I'm sure, of course, Fleabag would have been. Uh, the thing is really, though, that... They, they had a late slot, which is after uh, the news at uh, half past 10, which is fine, I suppose. But if you're looking at the younger teenage uh, area, maybe it's far better to be a bit more funky around about sort of eight o'clock after people have had supper and you know, homework and they're, they're looking for some entertainment. Secondly, even if this is a qualified success, it's not you're not saying that the programming can't be shared on another channel what you're saying is that it's going to premiere on bbc3 and that the bbc3 will have its own form of promotions and general uh, sort of ambience and i think that that it shows that the bbc cares about the thing about this past year if you really want my opinion is that we really do well what what has really happened this year is that despite our channels having a terrible, or television broadcasters having a terrible time in, in order to make programmes, they've all had to tear up schedules. I mean, the schedulers, I don't know how they've all managed to keep going. It's been a, a very, very, very difficult year. But they have performed, I think, really well. And one of the aspects of it is that the the uh, regulations and the quotas and, and the agreements that they strike and how they run their channels, what they put in, uh, the amounts of public, so-called public service broadcasting, Loads and loads of, of quotas and, and measurements are used. 42, it is really, tests for Channel 4 and over 100 for the, for the BBC. They've been relaxed because they had to 
they had to be what they could be given the circumstances. And I think they've done brilliantly. And so I do think that another kind of channel to play around in uh, trusting the broadcasters um, is, is at, at this point a really good thing. I think that if you look at the energy that's gone into some of the uh, changes in just the, 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 the kind of logos and all the rest of it that they're using and the general, um, the bits between the programs where they advertise their programs. They've all been very jazzy and very keen. And above all too, they've, they've understood what the nation wants. So we want more outdoor kind of things. And we've had the, the Devons and the Cornwalls and all of the countryside programming that you could, you know, possibly drum up. And it's been like that too with children. Uh, having the the BBC bite size, the government didn't say to the BBC uh, in in February, "Oh crikey, you know, help children uh, home educate." They they just did their duty, and they came up by April with with a complete scheme, and then they re-extended it, and they used radio for they did all sorts of things. So I think now it's good that the BBC goes back to BBC Three. And despite all of the gloom about, you know, licence fees and, and advertising and blah, 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 our broadcasters, our domestic broadcasters, are, are, are showing themselves to be full of grit and, and ambition. Except, Jake, the obvious strategy, the stated strategy of the BBC, actually, is to get eyeballs onto iPlayer, where they own the real estate and they can balance those public service values that Maggie was just uh, trumpeting with their big hitting TV shows, you know, like Fleabag and Normal People. But if 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 then bringing BBC Three back is an acknowledgement that it was a mistake to take it off air in the first place, isn't it sort of also acknowledgement this, that some younger viewers aren't going to go to iPlayer as an app? So this is the only way to get them. Possibly. I mean, it, it's a classic bit of BBC doublespeak. You know, at the same time, the BBC is espousing the power of television uh, it's also interviewing for positions in a restructured content team in which TV channel controllers are going to be scrapped in favour of a streaming, streaming yeah. first model. <laughs> so it's a sort of confusing um, message. But I think both things can be true at the same time. I think the BBC can be moving to a streaming first model, but still uh, embrace the power of TV. And I think the important thing with BBC Three is that uh, you mentioned the slots on BBC One. I, I, it felt like there was a kind of ghettoization of youth content on the BBC. And what this will do very clearly and symbolically is say, young people are massively important to the BBC. We have resurrected your television channel. You have a home here. And hopefully that will then later, later in life for these young people translate into them being willing to pay for the BBC's services, which is absolutely critical to this debate because there is this looming existential crisis for the BBC where young people may just not decide to engage with the BBC services. How do you think they feel about it over at Horseferry Road, Maggie? I'm thinking about with regards to E4. E4 was the, the, was the, the king of the castle and was the most uh, viewed by uh, young adults, uh, but it's lost its crown to ITV2 and doesn't seem at this point to be anywhere near resurrecting it. Um, I, I suspect that they will, I mean, it, it was there before in 2016. They have no reason to complain about competition because that's the market we're in. And above all too, remember, people are quite lazy and it's sometimes quite nice to come home and not have to worry about uh, what you're going to watch. You just kind of turn on and you just go to a channel, you know, 
close to the top of the thing and then you find something that's interesting. So a lot of this is happenstance too. And I notice that with my, I have, uh, uh, you know, young adult children and they don't watch scheduled television until they do. And um, it's not that they, and, and I think too as well, you know, these huge screens, which I love, I have to say, uh, just make some of the, uh, the, the, the scheduled programming uh, just as interesting, really, as some of the Netflix stuff, although, of course, we couldn't live without Netflix either. So we've just got lots of competition. Let BBC Three have a go. Uh, let competition rage. Of course, uh, Horse Ferry Road are not going to be very happy, but they're actually doing pretty well uh, at the moment. So Channel 4, in my opinion. I, I, think I can tell you exactly how E4 responded to the news of BBC Three coming back online. They tweeted, welcome back, losers, at BBC Three. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm imagining there wasn't a similar tweet from BBC Four, um, but there's going to be similar trepidation, isn't there, internally? I mean, I almost loathe to ask this question. I don't want to have a 10-minute debate about it again because we've gone around the, the houses on this previously. But what next for BBC Four if BBC Three is coming back? Where's the budget coming from to keep both alive? <laughs> it's got to go. BBC Four has got to go. It's being very slowly hollowed out by the BBC. It's, it's just a sad demise for a channel which was once, you know, a really thriving part of the BBC's output. But you know, hang on, making, I still making, watch it. Well, I, I, I it, you know, the original content is being diminished. Its budget's being cut. Um, original shows are being moved over to BBC Two. That has become even more pronounced during the pandemic, where we have less, uh, less content in the pipeline, and um, uh, shows are being switched around all over the channels uh, to make sure that uh, there's enough original content. Um, and, you know, I, I just cannot see BBC Four surviving in any meaningful way this year, let alone beyond this really? year. Really? Do you, you think? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I watched I watched a programme on Welsh art this week, which I, was a very BBC Four sort of thing, as I'm half Welsh and it was St David's Day on Monday. And there are occasions when they do come up with something that I find actually quite interesting. But I, I think some of the... Uh, the some of the things that are uh, on BBC Four could definitely go on to BBC Two in the evenings. And well, you know um, what's going to happen? They'll make BBC Four online only. The audience, <laughs> you know, who are getting older are now ready through all their Zoom calls to sit and watch it online, and then it'll be revitalised. They'll have some breakout hits, and then in six years' time, it'll come back on the telly again. Well, I, I actually don't think that's a bad idea. I think the BBC Four brand can live on, um, just not necessarily with an entire TV channel. Okay, we will be back with some more media news after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Maggie and Jake are still with me. And let's turn our attention now to Westminster and to this week's budget, in which the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, announced thousands of freelancers in the media industry will now be eligible for the Self-Employment Income Support Scheme, S-E-I-S-S. A year late, Jake, arguably, but this should help quite a lot of people. Yeah, freelancers have borne the brunt of production shutdowns here in the UK, uh, and many have been left devastated, you know, out of work, without any income on the horizon. Uh, so um, it's this is kind of less important now with production back up and running, but there are still lots of freelancers who will hopefully be able to tap into this when they do not have work. Um, it will capture some, but not all of the creative industry uh, contract workforce. Um, you know, there are still gaps that the likes of Bechtu would like to see filled. You know, many thousands of TV sector freelancers um, have been unable to access the scheme because they are uh, employed on short-term PAYE contracts or that they are paid via dividends through their private companies. So it still doesn't, um, it's still not comprehensive. Um, it's probably what freelancers would say. Yeah, most of the people I've seen, Maggie, most of the around 3 million people who were on short-term contracts at the start of the pandemic still fall through the cracks here of SEISS and furlough. Yes, I, 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 that's the sad thing. Um, all I can say is that I was really relieved when I saw what was in the budget yesterday on this point, and also the £400 million in uh, uh, support for the wider creative industries as well. It's been a terrible year. It's been very upsetting, actually, listening to um, some of the um, events of women in journalism and also um, back to uh, Philippa Charles has been one of the, the key campaigners, as we know, uh, listening to the hardships and the, uh, I mean, just just despair, actually, that um, many people have been expressing. So, yes, it, it's not at all perfect. And the best way forward is, of course, that, yes, uh, we are back in production. There are all these studios uh, opening and, and expanding. And as Jake so rightly said, uh, the British produc- production industry uh, is really top of the tree. All sorts of reasons why we should be facing a good future if, if we can get through this and also not lose some of the really um, well-trained and professional and experienced people in a lot of niche areas, not just the obvious ones, that all contribute to really successful and high-quality British-made programming. It'll be interesting to see as well whether social mobility has been affected because there's been some progress in that area and a lot of talk about it, a lot of talk this year about diversity continuing even though things, you know, productions were halted. I mean, the, the people who can't afford to not work for a year are the very people that they're trying to keep in the business, aren't they? There's always been that problem. And that's why I've, I, for many, many years, 
I've been appalled at the uh, way in which the successful independents, for example, some of them um, did not pay voluntary levies for training. Uh, and there's been, until, until quite recently, uh, a lot of sort of um, apparent goodwill towards um, assisting a diversified workforce, but in fact not really coming up with the kind of support measures that are needed and, and, and the hiring and and the and the the filtering out of people who could do uh, good jobs i'm i'm very impressed in some ways though by the way that for example channel 4 news which has definitely um attempted to diversify its both its con contributors and its web of uh correspondence has been operating i i watch it every night and it is definitely one of those areas where it is just no longer uh, just doing an easy vox pop or something in in a, in uh, somewhere around its studios. It's all over the all over the UK, in fact. And and we 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 need every single uh, person in the industry, really, from every kind of background, in order to make really well informed and inclusive television. I'm I'm I'm, I'm this is why I'm, I really was very pleased about at least Rishi Sunak. Uh, understanding that there, 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 there has been such an unfairness in the furloughing system. And Jake, last time you were on the pod, we were talking about the film and TV production restart scheme. There's been an extension announced to that as well. That's right. It's going to be extended uh, by six months to the end of December. And that's really important because it will uh, means it will capture the glut of summer shoots that take place. A lot of TV production takes place over the summer for the very obvious reason that there are longer daylight hours and uh, more time to film things. Um, I think this is really welcome news for the industry. Uh, the production restart scheme has been a unmitigated success, a world-leading intervention. I think the industry uh, groups and people, including PACT, that lobbied for it deserve a huge amount of credit. I also think the government deserves a lot of credit for seeing this as... Uh, an issue that needs intervention, recognising um, how important the TV and film industry is to the UK economy. Um, uh, you know, you've only got to look at the figures. You know, it's helped 200 productions get back filming. Uh, the government says it's protected something like 24,000 jobs. That, those are really impressive numbers. Okay, let's talk about the controversy at SAS, Who Dares Wins, one of Channel 4's biggest shows. Jake, talk us through what happened. Ant Middleton isn't presenting it anymore, but there seem to be conflicting stories about why. It's. A, I actually think this is a really interesting story, which kind of goes to the heart of TV's reckoning with bullying at the moment. Um, uh, and I'll explain why, but yeah, Channel 4 said on Tuesday that it given... Ant Middleton the boot, citing the fact that their views and values had... Uh, had well, they weren't in alignment, put it that way. Um, and it follows some controversial comments he made last year in which he appeared to call Black Lives Matter protesters scum and uh, downplayed the dangers of coronavirus, uh, which is not uh, an immensely smart thing to do. Um, there have also been questions about his conduct behind the scenes um, on SAS Who Days Wins, which, as you say, is one of Channel 4's biggest shows. Um uh, some crew have pointed out that he made inappropriate comments um, and the Mirror reported that these concerns were raised directly with Channel 4. Uh, Middleton himself says that it was his decision to walk away. Isn't it mm. always? 
Um, and that the show's been overtaken by, I think he called it the Woke Patrol. The PC Patrol and the Woke Patrol, yes. But he has admitted that he's not the easiest to work with and that he has butted heads with producers over the years. So, Well, one point that he did make, and he gave an interview to Good Morning Britain, didn't he, where he, he answered all of these uh, points. One point that he did make that you can't really argue with is that if it were about the tweets um, that caused offence then why was he allowed to film two more series of the show last summer since the tweets were sent and he apologised for them? So it's obviously not about the tweets, but Channel 4 sort of insinuated that it was, which does make you wonder what it really is about. I don't know the precise answer to that question, so anything that I say from here on in is going to be speculation. But um, it's clear that there were... Uh, you know, as the Mirror has reported, there were complaints about his behaviour behind the scene. Maybe not like formal complaints, but there were concerns raised about uh, the language that he used, particularly with female members of crew. And I think in this uh, this day and age, uh, in an environment where we are seeing um, uh, a reckoning in the TV industry over bullying, uh, where we've seen concerns about Gogglebox in particular... Uh, and uh, only last week, Piers Morgan was called out by about 1,200 TV freelancers who wrote an open letter to ITV saying that he had uh, targeted uh, a freelancer, former Piers Morgan's Life Stories researcher on Twitter. Um, this, is an, this is an issue that the industry is having to grapple with and wake up to, be alive to, uh, and... Uh, you know, in the context of the Me Too movement and diversity and all those issues, TV has to has to be better at this. And I think Channel Four clearly has decided to take a lead and and decide not to work with Ant Middleton, who, let's face it, is one of their big stars. Uh, it would not have been it would not have been an easy decision for them to make. Well, on that, Maggie, you know, if you'd asked me a few years ago who are the big faces of Channel Four, I think we could all have named you know people that have since left to the BBC, Gordon Ramsay. Alan Carr. Ant Middleton was, as Jake suggests, clearly on his way to being that sort of face for the channel. One of the the big faces, one of their big hits, kind of Kevin MacLeod, you know, but for the SAS. So who have they got left? They don't have many. And the, the answer is that they, they they never really have. I mean, you know, Kirsty and Phil, you could say, and uh, Jamie Oliver is is one of the the, 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 the stalwarts. Yeah. And I have actually um, met Aunt, uh, Aunt Middleton uh, and, and spent some time with him. Uh, and it was always pretty obvious to me that, you know, you get a special boat kind of um, uh, marine and uh, there was going to be at some point a co- collision with Channel 4 in my opinion. I mean, I would have expected him to go anyway, because that is the nature of Channel 4. Um, you know, they, they don't actually very often hold on to their stars. They didn't really try to hold on to Alan Carr. I mean, he, he was basically, uh, they have they have contracts and then they go. And there, there are times when this really hurts them, when, for example, it's the end of Black Mirror and, and, and they feel very cheated. But there are other times, I know, because I'm written the book that they decide that the person is either too expensive or you know they move on and remember channel four is there to find and to nurture new talents and yeah it can help creative renewal and all of that but in this particular show jake i mean his point was if you sign up either as a contestant or as crew actually for the kind of gritty physical immersive training course where the entertainment on screen is people being barked at and sworn at and pushed to their limits, then you can't be surprised that some people 
find it difficult. Yes, I can see why some people might sympathise with that point of view. Clearly, we we only know what we see on screen. Um, whether it's appropriate to talk to members of crew in the way that he talks to contestants while cameras are not rolling, I I don't think that's the case. He, yeah, I don't think you can claim that that's appropriate behaviour, regardless of the context of the show. And on that point of sort of letting the stars' contracts lapse, Maggie, it turned out in that interview that he hadn't been told by Channel 4 that he wasn't going to have his contract renewed. He found out in media reports. I mean, that just could have been dealt with better, couldn't it? Couldn't they have nixed a lot of the negative coverage by telling him? I'm surprised by that. And I think it may just be the case that, um, I mean, they do have um, a particular executive there who who's always on the lookout for talent. And uh, I think that it may just be the case that people are operating from their bunkers at home and, and things are just a bit... Um, the timing of announcements or the the, the, the communication of uh, decisions may not be uh, as good as they ought to be. I honestly don't know what happened. All I'm saying to you is that it doesn't surprise me that this has happened for a number of reasons, including the ones that Jake says, but more broadly because other people will want to use him on their shows. You may have just come up with a format replacement for SAS Who Dares Wins. <laughs> Channel controllers, bunkers at home. Well, I think it's also probably important to note that he, he wasn't exclusive to Channel 4 and, and, and hasn't been. He's done, you know, he's done a, a Sky show called Straight Talking um, and uh, I've asked Sky whether they plan to continue working with him. Uh, they've yet to yet to respond to me, but the most recent episode he did with Rebel Wilson was was genuinely entertaining. And also he's, I was looking at one of the magazines and he's doing a load of um, live events as well, uh, which you were being asked to buy tickets for for the autumn. So whether or not he really is a sort of Michael McIntyre type figure, I don't know. But there must be a following out there for the unwoke, uh, perhaps, people of Britain. Oh, he's, he's got a huge following. He's, he's a best-selling exactly. author, isn't he? Let's turn our attention to the press now, and starting with news that Daily Mail owner DMGT has been splashing the cash. Maggie, what has it bought? Oh, it's bought New Scientist, and uh, quite a good deal, $70 million. Uh, bought it for... Um, this is a, a wonderful magazine, 65 years old, a uh, great British institution. Uh, it was part of um, Reed Elsevier bought by a group of entrepreneurs, I think, for about $17 million about three years ago, four years ago, and um, has now uh, been taken into the bosom of the Daily Mail and uh, the, the trust that runs it. So I'm actually rather pleased because I think it will be looked after. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's a very sound magazine that attempts to communicate scientific news stories and this is a time surely when everybody's absolutely fascinated by a range of stories especially connected with vaccines and medicines and and health in addition it has an international status and uh, the subscriptions um, are high in america and australia and it has the potential when of course we get back to normal which we pray we do 
to have live events, which uh, again can expand the brand. And uh, I, I I wish it well. I'm I've, I we take it in my house, and uh, it's a source of um, oh, have you seen this or have you seen that kind of story? And I I, I respect it. It's an interesting time, isn't it, Jake, for the printed sort of magazine periodical type titles, you know, The Economist, The Week, Private Eye. They're doing quite well during the pandemic. If you've got a subscription model, that seems to be faring a lot better than, I mean, obvious dropouts like Metro and the Evening Standard where there aren't commuters. Yeah, well, as, as Maggie alluded to, it's a good time to be buying a, a well-respected science magazine. Um, I think, to your point, I mean, it's it's clear that if you have a a loyal readership and um, the content that you create is uh, is authentic and, and well regarded, there is always going to be an audience for it. And people are turning to trusted sources of news, which is, you know, gives me great heart, um, particularly when the world is in a slightly unstable place. And, um, you know, I, I was surprised. I didn't realise that half of New Scientist readers are outside of the UK. And that's, you know, that's, I can see why that's attractive to a potential buyer. Um, and you could say that DMGT has been on you know, a bit of a spending spree after it bought the eye in 2019. So clearly they've got, um, you know, they've got money to spend on the right titles. Except not all of their readership are as happy about it as you are, Maggie. Uh, there were tweets from staffers at The New Scientist, notably the editor Emily Wilson and the news editor Penny Sarshit, saying they've been assured we'll remain editorially independent and being very happy about the news. But then, you know, I click through to look at the replies from their readers and overwhelmingly 90% of the replies to those tweets were people saying, I'm cancelling my subscription, the Daily Mail is racist, homophobic, they're climate change deniers. Fundamentally, you're being funding, you, you are now funding an anti-science agenda and I don't want to buy your magazine anymore. That's a difficult criticism to deal with for them, isn't it? Yes. Well, you don't have to sort of get too carried away by Twitter because it's not necessarily representative. It is a touchy readership. I mean, I'm now going to say something which sounds like I'm promoting myself. It's obviously quite an affluent, educated uh, readership. And, of course, it did terribly badly with uh, spreading scare stories about the MMR vaccine. That's one of the big blots on the Daily Mail, which they have apologised for profusely. And the paper itself does uh, tend to run off with all sorts of stories which are not necessarily, how can we put it, scientific. Well, climate change is the big one, isn't it? Even if you take issue with the depiction of them as bigoted, climate change is a difficult one. All I would say is that um, if you, you just quoted some of the popular titles which have actually been nurtured by uh, the Daily Mail and General Trust, and they don't uh, necessarily have to, or they don't uh, form any part of the, uh, the Daily Mail's agenda. They are respected in their own right. And so I would hope, I mean, Emily Wilson is, is a good editor. I would hope that having bought it, all of these reassurances and, uh, you know, kind of editorial walls um, are, are, are observed and, and that they believe that they will be allowed to keep on with the very good job that they're doing. Maybe th- maybe some people will leave, but I can't believe that the central mission of that magazine, which is so well understood, is going to be undermined by a company that pays £70 million for it. I would have said that the, 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 the optimistic side is that they will be invested in further and uh, their, their, their subscription system and their online digital versions 
will go on being um, expanded and promoted. Yeah, they also say, Jake, that there are no plans to share stories between their titles. But I just wonder long term, I mean, if DMGT effectively own a load of science journalists, it would be a bit weird, wouldn't it, for them to be publishing science stories without saying, just verify it with them, check it with them. Like you would share stories, wouldn't you share knowledge and information with the experts? I think it depends on the culture of the organisation. I mean, I've worked at companies where there are very clear Chinese walls between different titles. And it sounds like that's going to be the case if they are going to give them uh, editorial protection. Um, hopefully, they don't want to see Geordie Gregg prowling prowling the, the, the desks of the new scientists. Um, but um, so I think without knowing how it works at DMGT, I think it's difficult to say whether that will happen or not. But what you could see is more, you know, more stories popping up in the Daily Mail that cite the new scientists. That, I mean, that, that could be uh, one potential thing that we, we see more of. And mentioning the eye, uh, according to Charlotte Tobit at the Press Gazette, 20 new journalist jobs are being created there after reorganisation of the newsroom, merging the print and digital teams for the first time. Um, finally, in press news, Jake, uh, the former Daily Mirror editor Roy Greenslade has resigned as a lecturer in journalism ethics at City University. Why? Because uh, he said in an article in the Sunday Times that he sympathises with the IRA. It's as simple as that, really. Do you think, Maggie, he knew that once he'd said that, because it had been talked about for many years and it was featured in a book, Flat Earth News, that this was the case, do you think once he'd admitted it, uh, that his position was untenable at City? Well, I mean, he was actually um, an emeritus professor. He wasn't uh, on the payroll. He had to just do one lecture a year. Now, I went to his farewell a couple of years ago, and he wasn't also um, on the, on the, in the pay of The Guardian anymore uh, after nearly 30 years as being their media commentator, principally on, on, on newspapers. It's more serious than, um, than Jake suggests, really, because... Uh, it, it isn't just that he is a member of Sinn Féin. Uh, what he actually... The, the, the article in the Sunday Times is about the only time the British uh, Journalism Review, an august but kind of rather dusty body, um, has made it onto the front page of uh, a great big national newspaper. And the reason is that um, not only um, did he um, become a member and a sympathiser what he actually said in that article was that he thought it was um, that, that violence was justified, that the Irish Republicans had a, a right on their side, in effect. And, um, of course, this uh, is something which has provoked an, a controversy and a, a, a level of dismay because, uh, well, I, for one, I was a trainee journalist on the Birmingham Post uh, in, in the year 1974, when the Birmingham pub bombings took place. And it isn't just that 21 people were killed, young people. There were many other people maimed by the type of bombs that were set off. In addition, he said uh, that he thought that um, some of the... Uh, there were occasions when bombs were being uh, planted or, or uh, acts of, of violence were, were planned that um, the British uh, police or security forces uh, either delayed or didn't actually um, uh, heed the warnings. And I, I, when I read that, uh, I really was surprised. And in fact, uh, there was a riposte from um, 
in, in the Daily Telegraph. I mean, the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail have been uh, obviously uh, feasting on this story because it, it exposes the Guardian, really, uh, because there is a, another uh, angle to this. One of the people who um, have complained about uh, Roy Greenslade's article is uh, a politician now, a woman who was raped, she said, by a senior IRA figure repeatedly. And uh, this was part of a, an award-winning BBC programme, which was then uh, one of the subjects of Roy Greenslade's um, uh, column in, in The Guardian, uh, 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 kind of questioning, I suppose, uh, what, her, what she was saying. So uh, The Guardian at the moment have not really responded very much, but they are, I know, um, or they're managing, you know, they're, they're uh, readers, um, editors, I think, looking through uh, the, the content of, 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 of to see whether there's anything else that um, really uh, stands out as, 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 as controversial. He had a very close relationship with uh, Georgina Henry, who was the media editor initially, then became deputy editor um, to, uh, to, to Alan Rusbridger, and um, uh, continued to be very close to Alan um, until he... Um, stood down from the editorship and in fact I was reading I've been spending quite a lot of time reading media books recently I was reading Alan Rusbridge's breaking news um, uh, story uh, uh, book which came out uh, last year and in it um, it's quite clear how much he uh, was still um, con consulting um, Roy on issues for example like the Leveson uh, inquiry into the the press so it, this is this is quite a a moment, actually, for, for for the Guardian, and it has called, caused a lot of gasps. It's understandable that we would be talking about his latter career as a media commentator, but really it's his prior career as the editor of the Daily Mirror, which is what has, you know, concerned readers of the Times now. Uh, it's the fact that someone was editing that tabloid then and secretly supporting the IRA. Well, I mean, he didn't last very long as editor, and in fact he spun his uh, long and, 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 and uh, career as a media commentator, 30 years, uh, and in fact wrote an extremely good book um, on, on the British press and uh, the history of the press since uh, uh, 1945 onwards. So he did a lot of things, but he, he, and he, he also had a column in the Evening Standard, but it turns out he was also uh, writing uh, on and off under a pseudonym, uh, George King, uh, for um, one of the Sinn Féin uh, newspapers as well. The thing about Arroyo, who of course I do know well in terms of um, working in the same field, working for the same newspaper, I had a contract with The Guardian too until 2011. And I think that one of the things that um, is, is germane to this, it isn't really uh, that he was a newspaper editor, it is that for that very long period of time, he was influential. He, for example, um, was um, the person who, who uh, was, was prominent in one of the first media radio shows, Medium Wave. And he then also um, was a commentator quite broadly. If there was a if, if this if this story was involving someone else, he would be here commenting on it. Yes, and I've I've presented those radio shows where he's the person dialed up for the gov. Yeah, he's the, he was the opinion maker, and I knew Roy. Uh, what I did not know, and this is why everybody is concerned, I did not know the depth of his um, uh, interest in in and and support for 
uh, the Republican fight. All right. Uh, let's um, just give you a few village notices uh, from the Media Podcast Parish Notice Board. Uh, firstly, if you know somebody over the age of 18 who's looking to start a career in TV, then the Edinburgh TV Festival's network is looking for applicants now. Lucky winners get three days of masterclasses in Edinburgh, as well as a year of mentoring. Uh, also from the TV Festival, it's Ones to Watch scheme is after people who've been working in TV for three or more years. Uh, and secondly, if you are an investigative journalist, then applications for Private Eye's Paul Foot Awards are now open as well. Links to all of those schemes and awards are on our website uh, and on our Twitter feed as well. We are at The Media Podcast. Uh, right, done that. Uh, there is just time, you'll be thrilled to know, to squeeze in our legendary media podcast quiz. Oh, no. <laughs> this week, we are playing Running the Numbers. Listen carefully as I give you facts and figures to describe three programmes which have been given the green light to go into production recently. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Jake, you will say... Jake. And Maggie, you will say... Maggie. Ready? Let's go. Which show am I? 44 Days, 32 Islanders, One Villa. Jake. Jake. Love Island. It is Love Island. I am Love Island, <laughs> which has been recommissioned by ITV for a summer season after being off air for over a year, thanks to the pandemic. Quiz question number two. Which show am I? Four people, three liars, one house. Jake. Oh, Jake. Maggie. Maggie. Oh, sorry, Maggie. Jake's <laughs> clearly got in there. Let's see if the answer's right. The show is called This Is My House. Yes, which is a new game show created by whom for a bonus point? Richard Bacon. Correct, but not hosted by Richard Bacon, hosted by Stacey Dooley. I wonder how that happened. Well, this is fascinating. I interviewed Richard um, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Uh, he has radically changed direction in terms of his career. I mean, he's known for reinventing himself. He went from from shamed Boo Peter presenter to almost ubiquitous on British television. And now he has transformed, transformed himself into someone who creates shows. Um, and he's doing a very successful job of it. But not as a presenter. Not as a presenter. He doesn't want to present anymore. He wants to make money. He wants Making to money. make money. <laughs> Owning a format. Have you seen what the format is, Maggie? It's basically four people walk into a home and say, this is my house, but the catch is only one of them is telling the truth. And a celebrity panel have to guess whose house it is. Where have we heard that before? Well, through the keyhole, yes. Yeah. The I miss him on Five Live, actually. So he said he wanted to do radio again. Um, I asked him where he's going to yeah. pop up, and he was like, well, I'd like to do music radio. So, I don't know, six music, something like that. Okay. Maggie, stay competitive. Which show am I? Five yellow people, one skateboarding 10-year-old, one nuclear family. Jake. Jake. The Simpsons? I am The Simpsons, yes. Why? Uh, because it's been renewed for another two seasons at Fox in America. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's got it, Maggie. I mean, I can't, I can't give, give you any of those points. I mean, he's got... <laughs> I'm completely, as usual, I'm completely outclassed, but I accept the grace. Uh, yes, The Simpsons has been renewed for not just its 33rd, but also its 34th season, uh, which takes it to 2023 and a total of 757 episodes. Uh, and uh, my thanks to Jake Cantor and to Maggie Brown. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then do visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. If you make a donation, even a small one, you could have a future episode dedicated to you. Uh, you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Peter Price. The Media Podcast is a Rethink Audio and PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Thank you.